So victory in Jesus, we celebrate the victory he's given to us. I do want to let you know that there is a children's ministry that is available. So if any of the kids want to head out, you see Miss Hannah that is over here in the corner and she is eager to work with the kids. So thank you all for bringing your kids. It's great to have a ministry that is available to them. I saw some sneak out that way already and some will meet her around the corner. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us. You have no idea how glad I am to be here with y'all this morning and uh, to be able to worship and to simply allow the Word of God to speak to each of us. I thank you for joining with us on this Sunday morning. It does look like things are starting to turn around just a little bit, uh, specifically as uh, we see the numbers kind of come down a little bit from COVID, so I celebrate that. Hopefully you guys do as well. Certainly good to see people back in their seats here for worship. This past week, I had the privilege of speaking at my former church up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I had served for about 10 years prior to coming here. I do want to take a moment and just say thanks to Colby for covering my responsibilities here so that I could go and do that. Although it was great to see folks that I had not seen in a very long time, I was quickly reminded of how good it is to be in South Carolina. As we woke up on Sunday morning and it was 10 degrees outside, and then we had to shovel snow before we could even go out last weekend. I know that it can happen here. There are times that we get snow. I even had one of you tell me this morning, no, we want that down here. And then I mentioned the 10 degrees. Oh, oh no, that's okay. <laughs> Nobody wants 10 degree weather around here. I will say that it is a blessing to be in South Carolina. Speaking of the Philadelphia area though, today we're going to be continuing our series on the seven letters to the seven churches. And I will tell you, I am not smart enough to make things line up perfectly the way they sometimes do. As we look in the book of Revelation, today's church just happens to be the church of Philadelphia. It is recorded in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, and I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to that. Again, it's in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Now, as you are turning, let me give you some information on this particular church. First, Philadelphia was about 30 miles from Sardis, whom you learned about last week. And although there was some trade that went through Philadelphia, it was primarily an agriculturally driven society, which probably helped feed the reputation as a friendly city. Smaller agriculturally driven cities tend to be filled with people who know each other very well. Often they are people they've grown up with and they've watched them throughout the years. And of course, you probably already know this, but the name would literally be translated from Greek as the city of brotherly love, which likely speaks to the heart of those who were in that city. Note that it's not just the church that is that way, but the community that was that way. But as with any city like this, it is also likely that not all people intimately felt the brotherly love that is referred to in their name. I know, for example, the city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania has certainly not always lived up to the name. For example, in 2021, they shattered the old record with 562 murders within the city. And although it is not true of everyone, 
The city is known for their passion for sports and their brash attitudes toward others. Even among the locals, they often joke about the fact that when Santa Claus made an appearance at an Eagles football game, they pelted him with snowballs, some after putting batteries in the snowballs. So maybe the name Philadelphia is more like calling a very large guy tiny. I keep trying to convince myself that when y'all call me fatty, you're actually noticing my thin physique. Well, the odds are that Philadelphia in the Bible really did live up to its name, at least for most people, those who were in the in crowd. And unfortunately, the Christians were likely not in the in crowd. So keep that in mind as we look at this passage. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what, I ha- what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So before we get into the message here that is given to the church of Philadelphia, It is worth noting the description that is given regarding whose message we have. You already know who is speaking because we have talked about it over and over again. The letter says that these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. We're talking about Jesus here. But this is interesting because this is the only letter that does not get God's description from Revelation chapter 1. All of the other six letters each get their description from Revelation chapter 1. But what we see here is clearly the greatness of God on display. He's defined as holy and true, words that are often used of God in the Old Testament. And it will again be used in this book just a few chapters later. In addition, there is a reference to God as the one who holds the key of David. The key of David is a phrase that is first used in Isaiah 22, 22, where God gives Eliakim the authority to have access to Hezekiah's palace. But note that this book started with a vision of Christ with the keys of death and Hades. In his hands, Having such keys, Christ is able to open doors that no one else can open. Doors that have been barred, things that seem impossible. You cannot do it yourself, but he can. Have you ever been in 
the position of trying to figure out what your future should look like, maybe with a job, maybe with a family situation. I know that I have. And in those moments, the best place for us to turn is to the Lord. In those moments, perhaps you catch yourself praying that God would open or that he would close doors according to his will. Well, he's the one who has the keys, so shouldn't we do that? It's not a bad place for us to start. He's greater and he's wiser than we could ever be on our own. He is the one who set humanity in motion. He is the one who gave life. And just as he set life in motion, he is also able to open doors that we cannot open ourselves. He is also always the one who knows what is best for you and for me. The point is this, whatever your need is, wherever you're looking to go, whatever it is you're looking to do, the best place for us to go will always be Jesus. He is the one who holds the key and he is the one who can open the door or close it. The greatest part of this is that Jesus not only holds the key of David and the keys of death and Hades. According to Matthew 16, 19, Jesus also holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking to Peter when he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What that means is that he is the only way to heaven. However, he has given us the opportunity to take this gift to others so that they too may enter into his presence. The point of all this is to say that he is greater than anything we could ever imagine. And he is the place that we should turn in all things. There are some things that, I don't know, maybe we just think they're not that big, but he is the place to turn even in those situations. Now, as we Look at the church in Philadelphia. There are some great things to take note of. For example, there is something that is missing in this particular letter. There is no nevertheless or however. In each of the other letters, we see a moment of rebuke. We see some type of correction that needs to be addressed. Jesus will begin with identifying who he is and then he'll celebrate something really good about that church. Like you guys are, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. However, nevertheless, I have this against you. Did you notice that phrase is missing from our passage today? According to our passage, the Lord notes that they have little strength yet they have remained faithful. Truthfully, this is perhaps the most positive description given to any of these churches. Weakness is so often portrayed as a negative thing, and we even try to avoid it as much as possible. We exercise, we get plenty of rest, and we eat right in hopes that we'll stay strong. But weakness is a beautiful thing. That was not a rebuke when he called them out for their weakness. The scriptures are full of references to weakness that almost uniformly points people to the Lord for his strength. For example, the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart 
may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And Isaiah 40 verse 29 says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And the apostle Paul spoke often on weakness, perhaps because he was very familiar with his own weaknesses. He declared in Romans 8, 26, that in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And in Philippians 4, 13, a verse that probably every one of us has heard over and over again, he reminds us that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, suggesting that without Christ, we are weak. And I love the way he addresses weakness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. Listen to it. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The point is that weakness is not a bad thing. In fact, our weaknesses cause us to lean more heavily upon a very strong God. And then it becomes a great thing. According to Paul's words to the Corinthians, we become more aware of God's sufficient grace and his extravagant power that is available to us. And he declares that for the sake of Christ, I am content in my weakness. He actually boasts of his weakness. He's okay with that weakness because in his weakness, he is more aware of the strength of God that lies within him. In fact, let me just say that I have personally found that my strength is never enough, but God's strength is always enough. During times of emotional distress, when things are not going the way I want, I know a God who will be there and he will be my strength. During times when I recognize my talents or abilities are inadequate, his strength is enough to make up the difference. In all my preparation and hard work, I always want to give my best to every task, including the task of preaching. <laughs> but the truth is that I fall miserably short when I depend solely on my strength. Don't get me wrong, I, I think... It's good that I prepare, and I, I do prepare each week, and it's, it's good that I work hard to do a good job, but the best place for me to turn will always be to Jesus. The best thing for me to do is to be in a position of dependence upon him. My strength is simply not enough. And of course, this applies to more than just the area of preaching. Y'all sitting there thinking, well, he's just talking about preaching. What does that have to do with us? It applies to the way I handle my life. It applies to my attitude when I'm driving. 
It applies to every relationship and everything that is a part of my life. And failure to recognize this will always lead to much regret. All of your hard work, man, I challenge you, you be the best because you are actually representing Jesus Christ. Do everything as if you are working unto the Lord. However, recognize that our greatest strength is not found in what I can do on my own, but what he can do in and through me. It is his strength that matters. My guess is that in our pride and in our arrogance, all of us have thought at some point or another that our strength was enough. We worked out in our minds how we were smart enough, why we could handle things on our own, or we simply decided not to pray about our needs with the idea that I got this one, it's okay. But remember where we started today. Jesus is always the best place for us to turn. You might think you're strong enough, but it's not true. Now, maybe for some of us, the issue is that we simply don't want to admit our weaknesses. We don't want other people to know that we struggle or that we really don't have it all together. Some of y'all are sitting there kind of smiling like, yeah, I've been there. Well, here's the thing. Everybody else in this room today already knows that you have weaknesses and that you probably don't have it all together. Because the truth is, we've all been there. Instead of being ashamed of our weakness, let us celebrate and allow God's strength to make up the difference. I'm not good enough and I need the Lord to help me. That's what it comes down to. And I'll cover two points in your sermon notes if you're following along. In our weakness, he is strong. And that will always be the case. Now, it's important to also note that God's strength showed up among this particular church group in a very specific way. Remember that they are weak, and we know that, but they are also known as having kept his word and having not denied the name of Jesus. I've shared with you many times before, but I have an identical twin brother. I say that we're identical, but the truth is we really don't look exactly alike anymore. I do have pictures when we were younger where I have troubles telling us apart, but today it's not quite as hard. That's primarily because he works out every single day and can bench press 415 pounds, and I clearly cannot. <laughs> and it's nice to take care of yourself physically, but the greatest display of strength is found in living faithfully for the Lord. I admit that I worry about the Christian church as a whole, all denominations included. It would seem that very few are interested in developing their spiritual strength. The Lord notes in this particular passage that they have kept his word. But I'm not even sure that there are many who have read his word in the church today. And then there are those who have read it only to twist what it says so that it says what they wanted to say. Unfortunately, I've actually seen that on both sides of the spiritual aisle. I've seen politicians who will quote a single verse, not even aware of its original context, just using it to accomplish their own personal agenda. They'll 
use verses like you should love your neighbor. And that's great. It's a truth. We ought to love our neighbor. But let's look at the whole passage. They'll use passages that say you shouldn't judge others. Well, again, that's great. It's true. But it actually goes beyond that. And what we do is we take bits and pieces that we like to accomplish our agenda instead of keeping it in its proper context. But I've also seen respected Christians who have selectively chosen which scriptures to embrace and which ones to ignore. Oh, we're really particular when we talk about the body as a temple of God. So you shouldn't put things in your body that don't belong. And we're very emphatic about it. We want other people to know that. Or we read a passage on sexual immorality. Or you hear the pastor read a passage on sexual immorality, and that's when you start hearing the amens. Tell them, preacher, we all need to hear this. Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without arguing or complaining. Do we need to hear that one too? You see, what happens is we selectively choose which ones we want to emphasize. And again, much like those who have taken a single verse of Scripture and twisted it for their liberal agenda, there are many even within the church who have selectively chosen which verses we want to be enforcing. But the Word is more than a tool to help accomplish one's agenda. It is the living Word of God, revealing the heart of God and the hope for all of humanity. It is a roadmap for a broken humanity to be made whole and right with God. These Christians here in Philadelphia were weak, but they knew the word and they were determined to keep the word. And we should seek to do no less. I'm gonna talk about a lot of other stuff, but I wanna take a moment and just challenge you as a church. If you do not know the word, how are you going to keep the word? It is time for us as the body of Christ to get to know the word and allow it to become a part of our lives, not just when we have an agenda and we want to make sure people know about the thing that we stand for. I want to know the heart of God. I want to know what he desires for me. And I can't know that if I'm not spending time in his word. So I challenge you as the body of Christ to make the word a part of your life. And as we keep the word, we will naturally represent the Lord very well. His church is commended because they have not denied his name. Now it's likely that this is a direct reference to the persecution which the New Testament church often had to endure. They constantly knew the risk of arrest or perhaps even death. In fact, one of the biggest catalysts to church growth in the New Testament era was persecution. Do you remember what happened at the stoning of Stephen? Acts chapter 7 reveals that the believers scattered for fear of persecution. It was a real thing. But when they scattered, they didn't stop telling the good news of Jesus Christ. They simply moved on to another place where they could continue to proclaim what they had experienced. Persecution 
for them was not something that we talk about, but rather it was something that was very real. It wasn't someone insulting them or someone marginalizing them and kind of treating them like an outsider because they go by the name of Christian. They knew persecution for them meant the possibility of arrest or even death. And even as they faced such persecution, they represented the name of Jesus very, very well. Maybe that's a part of why this New Testament church, and even specifically the church in Philadelphia, had grown so quickly. We may not face the same type of persecution that the early church faced, but we do have the opportunity to represent the name of Jesus very well. The way we handle ourselves in our community, on social media, in our homes. I talked about it earlier, but we must represent the name of Jesus well in all things. And if we do, we will by nature change the world in which we live. I tell my kids, actually, uh, Michael was going to a birthday party yesterday. He's got, as he got ready to leave, I, I said, do you know who you are? He said, yes, I'm your son. I said, do you know who else you are? He said, yes, I'm a child of God. I said, represent my name and Jesus' name well as you leave. That ought to be the heart of every single person in this room, to represent the name of Jesus well. As a dad, I want my son to represent me well, but I want all of us to represent the name of Jesus well. In this letter to Philadelphia, Jesus takes this representation thing a step further. At the end of each letter, Jesus gives the church a promised reward. And in this case, they are told that the victorious will be identified with Christ. Look at all the things that are included there. It's all about identity, specifically connecting them to him. As the king of kings, he talks about crowns. It makes sense. He's the king. We are in his family. There ought to be crowns associated with that. As the one who is worshipped day and night, He identifies them as a pillar with a continual presence in the temple of my God. And then he even promises to write on them the name of God, the name of the city of God, and the name of Jesus. Y'all may not like this illustration. It's okay. I'm not a tattoo person. I have some folks that I love very much who are tattoo people, but that's their choice. For example, many years ago, my brother got a Superman tattoo on his bicep. He claims that it's a birthmark, but I know better. (laughs) But a general rule regarding tattoos is that you want to be careful about what you put on your body. I've seen some put the name of maybe their children or maybe a cross that represents their faith in Jesus Christ. But I've also seen some who have put tattoos on their body and now those tattoos are crossed out or they're covered up. I asked a guy recently about a tattoo, this was in a grocery store, 
about a tattoo that was clearly a cover-up. He said he was covering up his ex-girlfriend's name. You want to be really careful about what you put on your body. Otherwise, it might come with regret. But I want to point out that this passage isn't really about tattooing so much as it is a name that will be continually associated with who you are. To the one who is victorious, the one who overcomes, everything about you will continually be associated with the name of Jesus. You won't be able to go one place and leave Jesus behind because he's actually his name's already written on you. The name of God is written on you. The name of the city of God is written on you. That's where our identity will come from. Perhaps that's where our identity should come from today. In a manner, as I was processing this passage this week, it's almost as if Jesus is writing his name on us as a declaration that we belong to him. He has bought us. He has paid the price. Do you remember the, the, the movie Toy Story? There's actually a whole series with it. In it, Woody is one of the toys. And he realizes that what has made him special is the fact that he belonged to a boy named Andy. And to confirm that ownership, Andy had written his name on the bottom of Woody's boot. Well, Jesus is saying that we belong to him. And this is perfectly in line with what the scriptures teach us. In Jeremiah 31, 33, the Lord says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That exact same verse with the exception of one word, the very first word is repeated again in Hebrews chapter four. And Paul writes to the Galatian church, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The idea is that I am not the same person. And it's all about ownership. The old has died and the new has come to life. Before Christ, I lived for myself. But now that he has come in, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Now do you see where that song victory in Jesus comes into play this morning? You see, the reality is before Christ became a part of our lives, we were a completely different creature. The things that drove us, the things that caused satisfaction in us, they were so unsatisfying. Oh, we thought they were great, but the truth is they were inadequate. But because of Jesus, we can sing about victory for he has given us the victory. I belong to him. Do you? Now, if you haven't caught on yet, 
I want you to note that this is not merely a reward that awaits us after we die or after the Lord returns. He already wants to be the Lord of your life. He already wants you to be identified by your relationship with him. He wants the rest of the world to know that what makes you special is not your talents, it's not your money, it's not your family heritage. What makes you special is the name of Jesus written on your hearts. Today there are people in this room who perhaps you do not have the name of Jesus written on your heart. Maybe we've talked about salvation and maybe you've even prayed, but the truth is you can't sing that song victory in Jesus because you don't even know what that victory looks like. I want you to know today that God is offering us victory. He is offering us the privilege of being known by his name of the old dying so that the new can come to life. And I assure you, the new life is greater than anything you've ever experienced in the old life. I have never looked back with regret over the decision to follow Jesus Christ. Yes, there have been times that I've not done some of the things that other people chose to do, but I have never looked back with regret because I know that in following Jesus and surrendering my life to him, not just for one moment of a prayer at an altar in a church, but in choosing to follow him every day of my life, I have found a victory that the rest of the world desperately needs. Maybe today you need that victory. I want you to know that it's available to us today. Maybe for you, you've been living as if that victory is out of reach. I'm talking to those who are in the body of Christ. Maybe for you, you need to dedicate right now that you will get to know the word of God so that you can then keep the word of God, much as this church was celebrated for. Maybe today it's you recommitting yourself to truly know him and his heart. If you would, I'm going to ask you all to stand and bow your heads with me. Maybe today you would say, I need to surrender something to the Lord. Maybe my everything. Maybe I need to become a Christian. If that's the case, I'm going to invite you to come. Maybe you're saying today, I want to commit right now. I am going to know the word of God. It's going to become a part of me and I'm going to keep the word of God. I'm going to invite you to come. I'm not going to have anything played over the piano or anything. I just I invite you to come. I'll wait just a few seconds. We're going to have a time of prayer. I'm going to pray for all of you. But at the same time, I wanted to give people the opportunity to come forward and respond to God's grace. Father, as we come before you today, we are so grateful for you and for what you have done for us. Lord, that song today that we sang, Victory in Jesus, it is... It's so much more than a bunch of words that we just sing with our mouths, but Lord, it is a celebration of the victory that has come because of what your son has done for us. But thank you for the promise of victory, not only after this life is over, 
but even today. Lord, I pray that every person in this room would walk as those who have experienced the victory in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for your heart. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt what it is that you desire for us. Lord, I pray that you would fill each of us with a devotion to know you, to know your word, so that it's more than just words on a page, but that this would become a part of who we are. I pray today that if there be one that doesn't know you, one whose heart is not right, Lord, I pray that you would cause them right now to be convicted of their sin and to know that there is hope only in you. Lord, I pray that salvation will come upon their lives, that as they confess their sins to you, that you would be faithful and just to forgive them of those sins. Father, I pray that we would be the church that is described here in Revelation 3. A church that has no room for rebuke, but rather a church that in their weakness they have found strength in you. Lord, help us to continually look to you for everything. Father, again, we thank you for your grace, and I pray today that you would help us to never take that for granted. We look forward to the day that we get to enter into your presence for all eternity and to see the glory of God that we see so dimly now, but then we'll see face to face. Father, I pray that when that day comes, that none of us would fear, but rather we would be able to rejoice over this great privilege before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is such a blessing to have you with us. Thank you for being with us today. Go in peace. And if you want to uh, be a part of our membership class, we'll be in the room in here that has tables. Not the one on the couches because I don't want you falling asleep. Thank you for being with us. <laughs>